1: Good morning! It's Wednesday, April 3rd, 2019, and this is the Red Sea Roundup. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Deacon Mike Bove. Today, we're going to be speaking with Carl Keating about his new book, The Francis Feud. But before that, we have a few things to talk about here in our local parish community, both here in the Brazos Valley and Central Texas and Palestine. And I want to welcome all our listeners, all those who are listening to us here on KEDC 88.5 FM, Hearn Bryan College Station. Also, welcome our Central Texas listeners on KYAR 98.3 FM, Lorena Waco. And also our listeners in Palestine on KINF 107.9 FM. Good morning, Thaddeus. How are you doing?
0: Good morning, Deacon Mike. I am doing well, and it's always a pleasure to be on Red Sea Roundup with you. Great to see your face, and thanks for asking.
1: Uh, One of the things I wanted to talk to you about, um, we have something coming up in the Waco area that is interesting to me. Uh, There's going to be a Chaldean Mass. Yes, yes and um, it's one of the Eastern rites of our Catholic Church, Mm -hmm. and- um, Fully
0: in union with the Bishop of Rome, mm
1: -hmm. that's right. Mm -hmm. Yes, and um, it's done liturgically different from the Roman rites, so uh, if you have not had the opportunity to go to an Eastern rite mass, um, this is your opportunity. What can you tell us about it, Thaddeus?
0: Well, I can tell you that it's going to be in Waco tomorrow, the fourth, Thursday, April fourth, and it is going to be at five thirty PM. And let's see, where did we get this information that was about Saint where St.
1: Peter's, isn't it?
0: Yes. At St. Peter's, which is the the church that serves um, Baylor University, and those of you who live in the Waco area, uh, you can also go to our website, redsearadio.org, go to the resources tab, and you can get information on St. Peter's Catholic Church, how to get there. Um, But it's at 5.30 p.m. Archbishop Bashar Varda of Erbil, Iraq, is going to celebrate Mass in the Chaldean Rite. And this is the Chaldean Catholic Church, not the Chaldean Orthodox. So they are in full communion with uh, the Bishop of Rome. They you can go to mass, you can receive communion. Um, these are, I believe, it's um, yeah Syriac. So it's uh, it's a, it's one of the mo- most ancient Christian languages, um, ex- that and that is still being spoken.
1: Well, not only that, but uh, the mass is intended to be in
0: Syria. Syria, Yeah, exactly. That's what I was trying to get at. Uh, and uh, this is some of the things that It's we a cousin don't... of Aramaic.
1: Yes. Uh, and uh, it uh, dates back almost all the way to the original Pentecost. Mm-hmm. And uh, the fascinating thing to me is that we, in the Latin rite, tend to think that Uh, Latin was the official language of the church, but that is only in the Latin rite because the other uh, Eastern rites have their own languages in their liturgies. And Syriac, there are some that are still Aramaic Mm -hmm. and, uh, of course, Greek. Mm -hmm. And so uh, if you want to be exposed to a totally new experience... um, Take advantage of this, uh, especially if you're in the Waco area and you have time tomorrow evening. Uh, attend the mass.
0: It was also one of the one of the oldest and original um, kind of theological languages, right on right on par with Greek in the beginning of the church. There was a lot, quite a bit of theology written in Syriac by some of the early fathers, I believe.
1: Well, each of the Eastern rites has their own theologians that mm-hmm. wrote. Uh, and uh, so there is a wealth of history mm-hmm. embedded in those rites. And uh, it's, again, interesting if you have the opportunity to go to one to look at the structure of the liturgy, which is pretty much the same as ours, but it has the cultural variations right. and the historical variations.
0: Right. So if you want to see something ancient, experience something uh, incredibly reverent, uh, and see the universality of the church through time and space, interestingly, um, along those two axes, please try to make it to this this um, mass tomorrow at 5.30 p.m. at St. Peter's. Now, later on this month in Waco, April 25th is our benefit dinner at Sacred Heart Catholic Church in Waco. Time is running short. Space is getting more limited as we speak for tickets and tables at that event, Deacon Mike, yes, April 25th.
1: April 25th in Waco. And uh, I encourage those of you that have not been there to one of the benefit dinners before, make sure you go. Uh, it's always a wonderful time and it is your opportunity to support Catholic Radio um, if you're listening, you're taking advantage of Catholic radio. You're gaining something from this. And um, the wonderful thing about the benefit dinner on April 25th is not only do you, again, benefit something from it, because it's a wonderful time, a great speaker, and uh, but also you can give something back. And uh, hopefully uh, we have lots of people that choose to come and support Catholic radio in Central
0: Texas. Yeah, to come see Tom Peterson. He's the founder of Catholics Come Home. We've got uh, his talk that he gave at the Central Texas Fellowship of Catholic Men back in 2018. We got a chance to hear that. That's what inspired us to invite him. He is going to talk about ways that in our own lives we can be Catholic heroes and draw people back to the faith, uh, show some courage to speak out and um just invite he he makes the point of uh people being being coming back to their faith just because they were invited to come to mass so sometimes the invitation is is all it takes doesn't mean you have to be a full-fledged apologist um like those guys on catholic answers for example
1: well and i think that uh the point he makes is valid that sometimes we feel hesitant to invite people to Mass, or invite people to a benefit dinner. Mm-hmm. and uh, But we're not required to teach them all we know about the Catholic faith. All we're required to do is show the joy that we have in our faith, and communicate that to other people. And one of the ways we can do that is by inviting them to Mass, or inviting them to the benefit dinner, and show them how much joy there is in our faith.
0: You know, and speaking of joy, I'm I'm excited about the benefit dinner because we've got, uh, it's you know it's baseball season starting up, and we're we're bringing a "Take Me Out to the Ball Game" theme to it. Uh, we're gonna have burgers, we're gonna have brats, we're gonna have beer and wine. Uh, it's just gonna be a lovely, lovely time there, and some wonderful fellowship with uh, your fellow Waco Catholics and and supporting the radio station. In Central Texas. So redsearadio.org slash benefit, $25 for individual tickets. And you can also sponsor a table so you and seven of your friends can come and hear Tom Peterson and support the radio.
1: But again, we're running out of space and seating. So if you want to go, make sure that you go online, redsearadio.org slash benefit. Yep. Yep. and uh sign up for either individual tickets or a table.
0: That's right. Deacon Mike, we've got a pre-recorded little brief interview that we're going to play right before we go to break for about 7 minutes. Um but we we've, we've got a few minutes before we're going to go to that segment. Do you have uh any other things you want to get out there for our listeners this morning?
1: Well, I did want to mention uh 1st of April 12th, uh, St. Anthony's is hosting another uh, of their famous fish fries. So um, it's uh, Friday afternoon. Uh, You're welcome to come to uh, Mass at 530 and go to the stations of the Cross immediately following and then go across the street for the fish fry. Or I believe it starts at 430, so you can grab an early dinner and... uh, uh, eat fish and it is always absolutely wonderful. And one more thing that I did want to mention coming up on Good Friday is, uh, St. Anthony's say group That's St. Anthony's youth, Mm -hmm. uh, putting on their live stations of the cross. Um, it will follow immediately after the veneration of the cross service that we have at 2 PM. And, um, then the youth will put on the live stations of the cross where they uh, go through, process through the neighborhood there around St. Anthony's and uh, act out the individual stations. And all the uh, young people uh, are playing the parts. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's become a, quite a tradition in Bryan College Station and it draws quite a crowd.
0: Yes, it does. And it's an excellent way to bring. Holy week to an end. So,
1: um, bring Lent and, to an end. Yes. So we encourage you to uh, attend it. And uh, I
0: lost my timer. So
1: I'm mm.
0: we've got about maybe one and a half minutes before we want to go to that uh, pre-recorded interview. I also want to mention that we still have our Lenten listening challenge running. If you haven't uh, maybe you haven't even thought about taking it up. Maybe you've kind of been doing it intermittently, uh, but we are really encouraging you to add an hour of Catholic radio to your day for Lent, and there's a few more weeks of Lent to go. Maybe really redouble your efforts and, and add that, that one hour of listening in. Maybe pick that show and kind of stick to that to that hour of listening that that works for your schedule, I've been taking up listening to Catholic Answers Live in the evenings, and getting about forty five minutes in that way, and then listening to making sure that I listen to some Patrick Madrid in the morning. Um, it's been it's been great for my soul, and I've felt uh, very fortified in in my faith. So we encourage you to take up that Lenten listening challenge. It's easy; all you have to do is just turn on the radio and listen. We're not asking you to sign up for anything or make any kind of public pledge. It's completely between you and, and the good Lord. If that's something you want to do.
1: And I'd also encourage you to invite others to take on that challenge. Uh, If you're listening to the radio station already, encourage someone else to do so because, uh, it will be a wonderful thing for them to do during the remainder of this Lent. So we're going to move now to the pre-recording of Marla Ramirez talking about the 2019 BCS MDA Muscle Crew 5K Run, Walk, and Roll. And we'll see you on the other side of our
0: commercial break. And don't forget to buy those tickets for the benefit dinner in Waco, April 25th.
1: And we're here with Marla Ramirez, and we're going to talk a little bit about the 2019 BCS MDA Muscle Crew 5K Run, Walk and Roll. Hello, uh, Marla. How are you today?
2: Hi, I'm doing great. Thank you, Deacon Mike.
1: I just wanted to ask a little bit about how did this whole thing get started?
2: Okay, so our son, Peter, uh, is currently 17 years old, but when he was seven months old, he was diagnosed with spinal muscular atrophy, which is a form of muscular dystrophy. So when we moved to the Bryan College Station area, we realized there were no local fundraisers besides the telethon at the time. So five years ago, we decided to start the BCS Muscle Crew Walk here to raise money and awareness uh, for muscular dystrophy.
1: What kind of support has Peter gotten from the community at school in support of this?
2: So for the first time this year, actually this year we have um, a MDA Awareness Week at a and Consolidated High School. So it's the first year we take it to the school and they're going they're going to be doing different things to raise awareness and raise funds for MDA.
1: What are you looking for as a level of success? What kind of participation are you hoping for?
2: Well, we've averaged about 250 uh, walk, run, and rollers at our events, which raises approximately about $8,000. Um, but more than that, it's, it's to bring awareness to muscular dystrophy and what uh, muscular dystrophy, how it affects people. Uh, there are 13 different forms of muscular dystrophy, and each one is so unique that finding treatments and cures has been really, really hard. So, it's that awareness of why supporting MDA makes a difference for families like ours.
1: And that's why it's so important to have these sort of fundraisers because it's such a challenge to find a cure for all 13 types.
2: Exactly. So I'd I'd love to share our personal story. Um, so we've been supporters, obviously, of MDA since Peter was born, and then we've been attending MDA clinic for 17 years, which is free to us. We have never received a bill from MDA, and he gets uh, evaluated by neurologist, a uh, pulmonologist, a uh, cardiologist. You you name it, and the doctors assess his uh, progress but also um, equipment, medical equipment. If we need equipment, they, they're they always there to support. If our insurance doesn't cover, they help. Uh, MDA summer camp, when kids uh, enter first grade through age of 18, they're allowed to um, experience summer camp for a week, uh, independent from parents. You know, they, We don't go with them, and, and they spend a week with other uh, kids with their same uh, type of illness. But moreover, two years ago, April of 2017, Peter um, was accepted into a treatment program for his condition, which is spinal muscular atrophy. And in the past two years, um, because he's been on this treatment, which was a pretty much MDA helped us coordinate the service, um, he has not uh, his his disease has not progressed. So he has been stable and actually making positive gains. So he went from missing 45 days of school. Um, prior to treatment to maybe missing about five now. So it makes a difference. Supporting MDA makes a difference because they're able to provide research funds, which that's where this treatment came from. And now we've been blessed that Peter has been participating in it and his health has just completely um, made a, a positive, it's moved in the positive direction.
1: Before we get into details about this year's event, I your uh, story brought up a question in my mind. How hard was it for you the first time that Peter went on summer camp Without you being there.
2: (laughs) Extremely hard. (laughs) If you ask uh, the director, who she and I are very, very close friends still, um, I would call two or three times a day to check on him. I would text her. I would—Trey would work in that area. My husband, uh, Peter's dad, he would work in that area, and he'd, like, kind of stop by because camp is in Burton, Texas. So—but, oh, my goodness, seeing the pictures that they posted and his smile and the friendships— Um, that he has built over, well, it's been 10 years since he's been attending camp. It's incredible. And this is Peter's last year to attend camp. So in June, he'll attend his final uh, MDA camp because he'll be turning 18 this year, so he won't be eligible next year.
1: But I think this illustrates how important these sort of fundraisers are because they do provide opportunities that the kids might not have any other way And so this way, you know, they can experience something that other kids take for granted.
2: That is for sure. So one of the big things, um, I'll never forget picking up Peter the first year, I asked him, so what was your favorite part of camp? And he's like, I ziplined. And, of course, I almost drove off the road, and I said, what do you mean you ziplined? And he goes, well, you signed the permission. <laughs> so, so we teased that. I was going to read the permission slips from now on. But definitely MDA camp is um, a huge uh, benefit from MDA to the kids.
1: Well, tell us a little bit about this year's uh, event. Where is it going to be held
2: Okay, so the 2019 BCS Muscle Crew is being held at the Bryan Municipal Park, which is on Via Maria Road, which is the old uh, golf course. So right there at the corner of Via Maria, um, we will have the event there on Saturday, April 6th. You can register ahead of time. It's $20 to participate, or you could register on-site. There is no age limit. We welcome one and all, and come have some fun with us.
1: And I noticed it says run, walk, or roll. <laughs> so apparently, you don't have to run the whole 5K. You
2: do not. You can do part, you could do all, you can bring your bike, you could bring your roller skates. Peter will have his chair. That's the roll part. We have kids in, in wheelchairs out there. So, strollers, everyone in, is invited to participate for the whole event, part of the event, or just to hang out with us.
1: Thank you, Marla, for being with us and telling us us about this. I urge all our listeners to consider if you're available on that Saturday, go help out these kids. And especially, you're going to have a good time.
2: Yes, thank you.
1: You're welcome. We'll be right back. And we are back, and as promised, we're going to be talking to Mr. Carl Keating about his recent book, The Francis Feud. Carl Keating is uh, the uh, originator of Catholic Answers and uh, the radio show Catholic Answers Live, from which he's now retired. Also the author of several books, What Catholics Really Believe, Catholicism and Fundamentalism, and one of my favorite books for life. So, Carl, welcome to the Red Sea Roundup. How are you? Uh,
3: Dick and Mike, I'm fine. I'm glad to be back with you and all the good folks in Texas.
1: Well, it's a pleasure to have you on. Um, We're going to be talking about your book, The Francis Feud. Would you tell our listeners a little bit about what made you decide to write this?
3: Well, the book is subtitled Why and How conservative Catholic squabble about Pope Francis. And in the introduction, I go at some length explaining what I mean by each of those words, and so we can get into that. Basically, this book is was inspired by the fact that uh, in the first half of last year, three books came out uh, looking at uh, Pope Francis and being slightly or relatively quite a bit critical about him and in the way he's been uh, managing things. The books are more about his management style than anything else, but they got me to be thinking about uh, something that's uh, been on my mind for a number of years. I've written several books sort of related to this, which is how we think about things, the need for clarity in discussions, the need to understand the meanings of words and, and how we talk about things, how we talk with one another, when we're basically all on the same side, but as the subtitle says, we often squabble with one another. And so I took these three books as an inducement or a launching point to examine the controversies about the Pope, how believers uh, are looking at him, uh, talking to or at or past one another about him, And what he's done. And uh, so I'm trying to to get an overview of uh, not just the issues concerning the Pope, but how believing Catholics are dealing with him and with one another uh, regarding these issues.
1: Listening to you, one thing uh, struck me is it possible that perhaps we have? formed a certain expectation of Popes from John Paul II and Benedict who seemed to be so precise and concise in what they said. I mean, 29 general audiences from John Paul II on Theology of the Body gave a very tight teaching on this. And so now with Pope Francis, it seems to be much looser and Perhaps that's causing us to struggle a little.
3: Uh, That's certainly a a, a good point taken, Mike. I think the the, uh, contrast is sharper even between Pope Francis and Pope Benedict, because Benedict, as a scholar, was always very precise in his writing. Uh, he, He wanted to make sure that he used each word in an exact meaning so that there'd be no misunderstanding. Whereas Pope Francis often gives his teachings off the cuff Uh, in news conferences such as on airplanes and the like. And even when he produces a document, the words tend to be less precise in their usage or meaning than those used by his two predecessors. So that's one sense in which we can say that he's a bit of a contrast with popes who came before him. But there's another sense, too. All three of those popes in particular can be contrasted with almost all the popes that preceded them, In that, through most of Catholic history, most Catholics didn't even know who was the Pope. They didn't know who was seated on the throne of Peter. Uh, And the papacy wasn't all that important to their everyday lives. So sometimes they wouldn't hear about several pontificates that would pass before they heard about, you know, some Pope doing something. Uh, In the modern era, with communications that began to change, earlier in the 20th century in particular... But once Pope John Paul came along and started um, visiting many parts of the Catholic world, that was ratcheted up considerably. So now that Pope Francis and his two predecessors in particular have had a kind of visibility entirely unknown to their predecessors. And that's another issue because that's a complicating factor here because it tends to give a kind of false emphasis to the status or position of the papacy in the church as a whole. I mean, this is not to discount the role that Christ set up for that office, but uh, there's, a, there's a tendency among some folks, Catholic and non Catholic, to imagine that the Pope is the church, whichever Pope it might be, where in fact, uh, as Cardinal Newman said a century and a half ago, if you just think of the church as the bishops and cardinals and popes and not the lay folks you've got a rather skewed understanding of what the church is.
1: Which brings me to um, the next question. In your introduction, one of the points you raise is, when is it proper to criticize a reigning pope? Is it ever or never proper? Might it sometimes be proper, even if not always? And is proper even the right word? The term suggests something right or permissible, but not necessary or compelled. Perhaps the question should be, when is it necessary to criticize the reigning pope? And again, based on what we were talking about, you know, the laity in the past would have heard nothing but perhaps rumors about something going in the Vatican. They wouldn't know anything about documents coming out of Rome concise. And so yet now in our modern world, we hear these things and that this is a valid question. So how do we address that? When is it necessary to criticize the reigning pope?
3: Well, it's necessary to criticize a pope if he's going off reservation, so to speak, if he's not doing his job. If he's, uh, instead of acting as a unifying focus of the Church, which is one of the functions of the papacy, if he's actually acting as someone who uh, is dividing Catholics rather than uniting them and helping them focus. So when those kinds of things come up, and there have been instances of this historically throughout the church. Uh, it's, it's proper for even lay people to criticize. Uh, there's there's a kind of false, or kind of clericalism among, in the, in the attitude of many lay people, thinking, well, you know, that's the criticism of a pope or a bishop or what have you, is really something we need to leave to the clergy. Uh, and we lay folks aren't competent to do that. But I think we've seen enough, given scandals of a different nature uh, in the church in recent years, that uh, we can't always rely even on the the bishops or or priests to have a a good, balanced understanding of the forces going on within the church and what the problems are. Uh, So uh, we can say generally uh, anybody, any Catholic, I suppose even any non-Catholic, has a certain freedom to criticize a pope or any other cleric. But precisely because of what the Church is, how it's structured, and what the papacy is, that needs to be done with the kind of reserve and intelligence and uh, humility and courtesy that nowadays we don't always find. And one of the things that I looked at in the Francis feud is is the way people have been complaining about or defending the Pope, and both complainers and defenders uh, sometimes have gone off an edge, uh, in, in doing that. Uh, you know, one of the things I, I mentioned in the introduction, uh, just a little bit beyond the part, Dick and Mike, that you just read was that, uh, people have always been sort of free to criticize popes. And I said that, uh, you know, nobody would complain if you bring up something unflattering about a long deceased Pope. So you can say that innocent, the 10th was feared by his servants, which is true and that is a little bit unflattering, or Julius II shouldn't have taken up the sword literally, which he did. He actually led an army. Or that Gregory XVI was wrong in the uh, 19th century to oppose using gas to light the streets of Rome. And he was opposed to it. He's very much a technophobe of the time. Uh, And, of course, you can also say this about uh, sainted popes. I mean, uh, Peter had. A, we can say that uh, you know Peter had a coming to him when Paul rebuked him to his face. Or we can say that the last pope to resign prior to Benedict the Sixteenth, Celestine the Fifth, uh, was a holy man. He's sainted. He's a holy man, but he's an incompetent pope, which he was. So there are criticisms that are we can say legitimately about long deceased popes, and nobody really complains when we do that. The complaints tend to come up or the reservations come up when we're talking about a reigning pope. And so those are the kinds of of distinctions I'm trying to make in The Francis Feud, as we look in particular at the the ongoing papacy of of Pope Francis.
1: We're talking to Carl Keating, author of The Francis Feud. Now, in the first book that you look at, The Dictator Pope, a couple of things that struck me um, is one of the things uh, we were talking about, the tone of the criticism, but also it came out originally anonymously. Would you yes, talk right. a little bit this about that?
3: The, hmm. This is the first of the three books that appeared. It appeared in December of 2017, uh, The Dictator Pope, and it came out under, over the, the name of Marc Antonio Colonna. Well, the real Marcantonio Colonna was an admiral at the Battle of Lepanto in 1571. So a major historical figure. Uh, I wrote early on, once the book appeared, um, I wrote a long piece online as a review of it. And I had several criticisms. The first one was the title. I thought the title, The Dictator Pope, was rather over the top. And that, in fact, uh, the contents of the book didn't really establish that or warrant that. I also complained about the author using a pseudonym. Uh, I think that as a general proposition, that's not a prudent thing to do. Certainly, it, it tends to reduce credibility. If you're not willing to stand up in public with something you write, it suggests that maybe you're not too convinced that what you're writing is accurate. Well, later on, uh, the name of the author was revealed It was Henry Sire, who Uh, had been, for example, the official biographer, or historian rather, of the Knights of Malta. And ironically, because of his identification with the Decatur Pope, eventually the Knights of Malta kicked him out of that organization. So uh, so so I had those kinds of criticisms. There were uh, a number of points I comment on where uh, he made some assertions with absolutely no Uh, citations or or substantiation, and that is the kind of thing one has to be careful about in writing about uh, a public figure, Uh, not for reasons of libel or defamation, but if you're going to claim something, especially if it's tendentious, you need to have some support for it. And there were a few points that he did, and I complained about those. Uh, But on the whole, the dictator pope had a lot of interesting material. Uh, Sire Looked consider, uh, a considerable extent at then uh, Archbishop and Cardinal Bergoglio's uh, background in Argentina and uh, his status with the Jesuits there and, and his modus operandi when he was in Argentina and uh, people's uh, observations from that country about how he handled things. And that was, I think, a valuable uh, addition the information we have about the Pope, it's always good to know a man's background because if you can see how he operated in the past, you get some sense of how he'll operate now or in the future. So there were strong points about the dictator Pope, but I did have my reservations about certain things such as the title and the uh, anonymous author. Uh, So that was the first book that came out, and it it caught a lot of people's attention. It was a top-selling book at Amazon for quite some time. And uh, it, so a lot of people read it, and uh, I think it influenced not the other books that I mentioned in The Francis Feud, but it, mentioned a lot of, it influenced a lot of um, commenters who were otherwise writing about Francis, and, uh, and they took into account, yay or nay, things that Henry Sire had in that book.
1: And I noticed uh, in your critique uh, of the book, you mentioned that a lot of Sire's commentary dealt with the style of Pope Francis, Um, the way he conducts business at the Vatican, the way he interacts with people. And uh, you also mentioned that some of the uh, commentary from other people critiquing the book uh, were much more... uh, concerned with the whether or not the Pope is a let me quote this pertinacious heretic
3: yes uh, sires emphasis was more shall we say on the mechanics of the Francis papacy rather than the content doctrinally speaking uh, each of the books looks at things such as a moreitiia uh the exhortation that came out after the Synod on the Family and and on other things. But Sire in particular is looking at how Pope Francis and before that as Cardinal Bergoglio in Argentina uh, functioned in his capacity. And uh, basically Sire's argument is that the Pope is rather peremptory. Uh, He's he's not to his subordinates the, the father figure that he seems to be when in the national news, uh, and so Sar had a lot of uh, examples that he would bring up, both uh, before and after uh, Bergoglio was elected as as Pope Francis, and uh, uh, you know a lot of that I think was rather revealing. Uh, but but yes, that book, the the Dictator Pope, looks more at uh, how Pope Francis has worked. Uh, in his history, you know, in, as being in a position of authority in the Church, uh, rather than than so much on the doctrinal questions that also have come up.
1: And I think one of the things that I found surprising in uh, your critique of the dictator pope in your book, The Francis Feud, was that the image that we perceive of Pope Francis as he interacts publicly seems to be such a contrast to what is described of both his actions as cardinal um, in Argentina and uh, in his private discussions or interactions with staff at the Vatican. And that seems to be a contrast.
3: Yes, and and this is something that uh, later writers have uh, seconded Including the ones of the other two books that I look at and other commenters that I mentioned in my book, and things that have have been um, said since my book appeared some months ago. Uh, this is not unknown historically. One one of the popes I mentioned and uh, that I named in my introduction, Innocent the Tenth, would be an example of that. Uh, very competent man in many ways. Uh, there's a a wonderful portrait. One of my favorite, perhaps my favorite portrait. Uh, of all time, is of Innocent the Tenth. It's at the Doria Pamphili Gallery in Rome. Uh, He was from the Pamphili family, so that's why it's there. And when you first look at at this portrait, which is by Velazquez, you're really taken aback. There's the Pope sitting on his throne, dressed in red, as it was in those days, rather than white. And he looks at you with steely eyes and it's said that when this portrait was unveiled, Innocent X's servants, when they first saw it, were shocked and, 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 you know, were sort of taken aback because it looked too much like him. He was a hard taskmaster. And so uh, Innocent X was operated a certain way inside the Vatican, and, but he had a different impression, publicly, so to speak, outside the Vatican walls. And now that was centuries ago. And so uh, we see apparently the same kind of thing now with Pope Francis. Uh, he's uh, a tough taskmaster and, as I say, somewhat apparently peremptory in his dealings with his subordinates in the Vatican. Uh, there's a lot of tension there. There are people who, who uh, employees of the Vatican who, at the papal direction, lose their jobs that get shifted around without explanation. Uh, there are things going on there in those senses that we didn't hear about with the previous popes. Um, on the other hand, the, the public persona of Pope Francis is, is very much an affable grandfatherly figure, a um, very humble man, very much concerned with the poor and the suffering. So there seems to be both a private and a public aspect to his personality, and they're not apparently always in sync.
1: Again, we're talking to Carl Keating about his book, The Francis Feud, and now I'd like to take a look at the second book that you talk about, and that's Philip Lawler's The Lost Shepherd. And uh, what can you tell us about that?
3: Well, uh, Phil Lawler is well-known as a a Catholic uh, journalist. He's been reporting on things in the church for decades now, and I've always found him very reliable. I know him slightly. And, uh, and when his book came out, I gave it a very positive review. As a matter of fact, my name is, is uh, not a blurb on the back cover. And I think Phil did a fine job. Uh, he, he looks at uh, uh, the situation with, not so John eyes as Henry Sire does. Uh, his book doesn't have the problems that, Sire's book has of being a bit too tendentious and all. I think Lawler is very well balanced. Uh, He's a good writer. His his book is is just interesting on its own. Um, He looks at more length than Sire does at some things, such as uh, the uh, Amoris Laetitia controversy and so forth. Uh, Lawler, as a journalist who's been in the Catholic world for many years, has a lot of contacts. He's got a lot of ins and insights. And I think that that uh, makes this book a good read. And, you know, he's, he's known as a, uh, a, a solid Orthodox Catholic, a, you know, a, basically a conservative disposition. Uh, and he does mention that, personally, uh, his views of Francis have changed from the time when the Pope was first elected to the time that his book came out. Uh, later on, after the book appeared, uh, Lawler's wife online said that she and Phil uh, had concluded that to use her term, that Pope Francis was a bad pope. Uh, not meaning morally bad, mm-hmm. but but not competent in, in doing the kinds of things that a pope needs to do in a world that's uh, in many ways falling apart intellectually and morally. Uh, and um, you know, although that phrase isn't used in the book, while uh, Shepherd, um, nevertheless, you you can see that Phil Lawler is very much concerned about uh, the Pope's looseness in talking about moral and doctrinal issues, and uh, and his his um, apparently apparent disinclination to do what one might. Thing needs to be done in terms of disciplinary matters.
1: Now, you spend quite a bit of time in uh, your uh, book on Dave Armstrong's critique of Lost Shepherd. Why was that?
3: Yes. Uh, well, Dave is a well-known Catholic apologist online. He's written a large number of, of books. Uh, and he's a long-time friend of mine. Uh, for reasons that I've never fully understood, uh, Dave came out immediately, and condemned Phil Lawler's book and Phil Lawler as Pope bashing, as, as Pope basher. And uh, I, I, this is one of the things that uh, I look at at some length in the Francis feud, how people online, either well, fairly well-known like Dave, or not well-known, or maybe otherwise unknown, have uh, looked at these particular books and the things that they're trying to do. And I faulted Dave for uh, overreaching in his critique of uh, the Lawler book. Uh, I don't find it helpful to use terms such as Pope Basher or whatever their equivalents might be. These are, uh, I think, unhelpful terms because they they don't make distinctions. Uh, Certainly Phil Lawler has criticisms about Pope Francis. They're milder in the way that they're phrased than Henry Sires, but they're criticisms, and I, I think that they're basically legitimate criticisms. and This is why I endorse the book. I thought that Phil, Phil Waller was basically on point in his criticisms. Uh, he certainly began as someone who's very um, open to Pope Francis, uh, but uh, he modified his views as time went on, as I as I mentioned. Uh, but uh, Dave Armstrong, God bless him. Uh, They immediately came out uh, as a defender of the Pope and seemed not to be willing to entertain the possibility of criticism, whether from Phil Lawler or other people. And so I quote Dave and other people at great length in uh, in my book. Uh, After my book appeared, Dave and I had a lot of correspondence, both public and private, and he admitted that all my quotations of him were accurate. And they were all in context, and he had no complaint about that. He couldn't, because sometimes I would I would quote him for a couple pages at a time, you know, with, without interruption, so that he could state his perception of mainly the Lawler book. Um, but I also criticized it uh, the way he was, was approaching Lawler, and uh, uh, but uh, I think that he was is is a good example of well intentioned and well informed. Catholic, who, for reasons that I'm still not clear on, uh, I think has taken an approach that's not uh, either fair or to the author, in this case Lawler, and not too helpful to those who read. Because as I say, when we use such blanket terms as this guy's a Pope basher because he makes a few criticisms of the Pope— When we do that kind of thing, we're sort of closing off discussion rather than working through the question, well, which of these criticisms are warranted or are partly warranted or are unwarranted? Let's go through them one by one and make sure. Uh, When we use such broad terms to characterize somebody like Pope Basher, uh, what we're really doing is closing off discussion, which I don't think is a good thing.
1: One of the things that Armstrong brought up is the question of obedience, and he quotes John Henry Henry Cardinal Newman, uh, Humanae Generis, and Lumen Gentium, and uh, I think, uh, just personally, I thought that was somewhat misplaced, because criticizing the Pope for some of the things he says is not a question of obedience, it's more a question of uh, having concerns And Mm -hmm. so, uh, I think that, uh, go ahead.
3: Yeah, no, I, I think, I think that, uh, Dave Armstrong confuses categories here. Uh, obedience is necessary. This is, this is a virtue. It's not the highest virtue, but it's a virtue. And, uh, but obedience is something, is a reaction to an instruction or order that's given a child is to be obedient to his parents, at least so long as the parents instructing him to do something that's not sinful, right? But, but, but that's uh, a different kind of thing than what's really at, at stake here. When somebody like Phil Lawler criticizes an action of the Pope, that's not being disobedient. Uh, obedience simply isn't a, a factor in that situation. Uh, if the Pope were to tell him legitimately to lay off, and if the Pope had that authority, and it was proper to do that, well, then Lawler would be having a different issue. But there's the the, uh, praise or criticism of a pope or of any other cleric uh, simply outside the realm of the topic of obedience. It's simply a different thing. So when when Dave was quoting Cardinal Newman, of whom he's a great fan, as am I, uh, I think he was quoting him uh, inaptly, inappropriately, Uh, using a Newman quotation from the 19th century that came out of a situation that was simply not parallel to what we're talking about here. Um, Certainly the papacy and really the episcopacy uh, as set up by Christ, those are institutions to holders of which we need to be obedient to uh, in those matters in which they're exercising the, the authority given to them by Christ. Uh, But, you know, if if a bishop were to come out and to tell you, you know, how to plant your garden, uh, he could give you instruction to do that. You could disobey him because he's, he's, you know, that's uh, beyond his authority and beyond his competence. So um, obedience is is a distinct thing, and I think that Dave uh, brought that up uh, improperly when, Looking at the situation, particularly in Phil Lawler's book, which is the main thing that that uh, Dave was criticizing in my book, which was uh, uh, my giving Lawler, in essence, a, a platform uh, by my recapitulating uh, Lawler's thesis or his argument. And Dave was not happy with that, and uh, and his you know one of his complaints was that while in some way was being disobedient. But as I say, I don't think obedience is is the right thing even to be addressing in this matter.
1: Again, we're talking with Carl Keating about his book, The Francis Feud, and I'd like to talk a little bit about the last book that you cover here, and of all three of those, the one I would most like to read is uh, To Change the Church. What was your impression of this?
3: Well, To Change the Church is by Ross Douthat, the uh, New York Times columnist. And of the three books, I think it was the one uh, in some ways the most interesting, certainly the most um, calmly written. I mean, not that Phil Lawler's wasn't, uh, although there were some parts in there where he he had some pointed language. But uh, of the three authors, um, Sire and Lawler and and he, uh, Dalton takes, I think, the most um, sort of hands offer arm's length a, a look at Pope Francis. Uh, and he gives, uh, I think, insights that the others don't have. I mean, each, each of the writers has something to contribute that the others didn't. But, uh, but I would recommend the Douthit book, uh, because I think it was a good look by someone who's uh, not a professional Catholic in the way that maybe both Sire and Lawler have been, uh, because both of them have worked in and through the church, whether in journalism or for the Knights of Malta or what have you, where Douthat, although Catholic, has been in a secular environment, uh, you know, the country's major newspaper. And so there's a somewhat different approach to the issues from him.
1: One of the things that you mentioned uh, towards the end of the book is the importance of rhetoric and how it's misunderstood uh, today and we're nearing the end of the interview but would you briefly touch on that because I found that interesting
3: well this book like my previous book uh, The New Geocentrist and another book I'm working on now which will be about the atomic bombings of Japan all those books are really books about rhetoric you know, nowadays when we use the term rhetoric we tend to mean um, people blowing hot air uh, and, and just spouting off where actually rhetoric is the art or science of persuasion. You know, Aristotle wrote a whole book about it, and many other people since have done that. Um, there are many people, ways that people learn things or come to accept things, such as through a sheer syllogism. But mostly it takes more than a syllogism to convince somebody of something, uh, to persuade somebody that something is true and should be followed, something's good and should be adhered to. And so rhetoric is that art of how to do that. And in, in these books, uh, I am doing something parallel in all of them, which is how do people discuss particular issues, whether here at the Pope and the theological issues, my previous book, Cosmology and Geocentrism and, and How to Understand That, or my upcoming book, How to Understand hist- an Historical Issue. Uh, and how do people talk about those things? So I've very, been very much interested in, Proper use of words so that because we live in a time, as George Orwell said, where words are being changed in their meaning, they come to mean something else to the point where many people now are incapable of even discussing things because they don't have the vocabulary, they don't have words that have meaning to them. And so, for me, uh, rhetoric in the, the modern era is a, is a key area that should be studied uh, because unless we can explain. In words, what we're thinking, we have trouble even
1: thinking. Again, we're wrapping up with Carl Keating on his book, The Francis Feud. I encourage our listeners to purchase it. I'm assuming we can purchase it at Amazon.
3: That's correct. It's available both in paperback, as an e-book, and also as an audio book.
1: All right. Thank you very much for being with us, and thank everyone for tuning in. Next week, Gene Wilhelm will be your host of the Red Sea Roundup. Remember to tune in for that. Until then, when considering the many ways in which you might share your time, talents, and treasure with God, always round up.
2: Since you wake up And talking. I'm alive again. No more
0: this lenten season